Welcome to the TJF Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in policing for a few years. This podcast is all about what it was like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. How did it change? And more importantly, how did it come to be in a bit of a mess? I'll describe every job that I did over those years. Reading from my book, I'll also give you my thoughts about contemporary policey stuff. I'll interview anyone brave enough to come on and ask them what they think. My wife Kay is going to help me from time to time. There may be a little bit of swearing, so probably better to keep the kids out of the room or use headphones. Everything I say and write comes out of a place of love for policing and police officers. But I know that some people probably won't agree with what I say, and that's completely okay. All I ask is that you read or listen with an open mind. And if you go away feeling that you know more about what policing in Britain is really all about, and perhaps also have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, it's uh, Ian here again. I uh, hope you're all well. Uh, listen, we're going to get straight into it this week. We're going to go straight into an interview with uh, Tony Long, who's an ex-Metropolitan Police Farms officer who was thrust uh, extremely reluctantly into the public limelight back in 2014-15 when he appeared at the uh, Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey, charged with murdering Azel Rodney uh, during a pre-planned police firearms operation that had taken place nearly 10 years before. So um, we're going to hear all about that from Tony as well as his general thoughts on firearms policing and the way policing is going nationally so we'll get straight into it uh listen tony um i'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today there are very few people i think who can genuinely be described as uh as legends um i think it's a very overused word in this day and age i looked up the word legend in the oxford dictionary and it said describing someone who is very famous and admired usually because of an ability in a particular area whereas this day and age if you make someone a cup of tea you're a legend aren't you so uh yeah, yeah. well welcome yeah. to the podcast mate yeah i think someone said the other day you're a legend if you go down and uh, go down the office to get some beers and you come back with a packet of crisps as well <laughs> yeah no you're right and uh I, I was working on a project towards the end of my career with a bunch of uh millennials bless them and if you're listening uh i love you all but uh i will take the piss uh, a bunch of millennials working for the consultancy accenture and they used to use the word awesome all the time so um i'd make them a cup of tea or something and they'd go uh, oh that's awesome he's like no it's not it's just a cup of tea man. So. yeah yeah uh, listen um let me just kind of um give a little bit of an overview of of you and then you can um tell me if if i'm on the right track so so the reason i wanted to speak to you tony was that you've been through an awful lot um you were thrust into the public eye in 2014 uh when you were charged with murdering um 24 year old azel rodney during a pre-planned firearms operation and and then uh you ended up in the Central Criminal Court of all places charged with murder, and then you were acquitted in 2015. You you obviously, you know, your journey through the police, you saw so much change, particularly in the firearms world. And I just really wanted to speak to you about your experiences, how that affected you, 
and and your thoughts really about what's happened to policing for good or for ill. And uh, so, yeah, so um, as a as a firearms officer, you obviously saw a lot of change over the years, didn't you? Oh, huge amount, huge amount. So um, when I joined, you know, I make no bones about it. Um, I, I The reason that I joined is because I wanted to do the, the sexy stuff, you know, and that was because I didn't, like most people joining the police, I didn't actually know what the police did. Uh, and all the heroes in cop movies seem to be detectives. Most of the cop movies are like, Things of the era, so you know, I'm talking mid 70s. So we had Serpico, um, we had The French Connection, which is still one of my favourite cop movies, and of course Dirty Harry. So they were all, you know, guys, detectives, you know, scruffily dressed with a two-inch revolver, or in Dirty Harry's case, a six-inch 44 Magnum, running around the streets sorting out crime. And of course, when you actually join the job, you realise that detectives don't do that stuff, or very few detectives do. You know, if you if you get into special operations, then yes. But the vast majority of the detectives that I met when I was a young copper at Lewisham in South London um, were probably a bit overweight, probably liked a, a drop of scotch way too much. They seem to spend an awful lot of their time either in the golf on the golf course or in the pub, um, or in the office with a cigarette hanging out the corner of their mouth doing you know two finger typing. Um, and actually, the guys that did all the sexy on the street, you know, dressed in scruffy civilian clothes and chasing bad guys over rooftops, were uniform coppers uh, attached to crime squads and so um, although I joined the crime squad or I was selected to go on the crime squad at Lewisham with a view to becoming a detective um, I knew that my heart really wasn't in it the closer I got to the CID side I got a huge amount of respect for detectives but it just wasn't my bag really yeah so I had aspirations to you know be trained in the use of a firearm I was a private shooter I owned my own handguns and I used to shoot competitively so it was naturally something that I wanted to aspire to, but it was almost a secret underworld of, uh, you know, if you were a firearms officer, um, on an outer division in London, you didn't get a shots course. Shots courses weren't offered up um, because there was sufficient people who'd been trained as young coppers when they were on A division or B division, which for those listening who don't know, is in central London. Um, and so as a probationer, you know, they'd give you a, a firearms course because they wanted you to go and stand outside an embassy some or embassy, stand outside yeah. a, a, some, some you know, government building. Yeah. And that's really the, the main reason that people were given shots courses was really to do static protection. And to, to a certain extent, that's still true in the Met today. The, you know, the lion's share of, of firearms carriers are people just standing on a doorway protecting yeah. uh, VIPs. Um but in those days, you weren't even allowed to see the gun. So it wasn't until, you know, I'm talking 1975, but it wasn't really until two decades later that mm. we even considered the overt carriage of firearms. Yeah. So you had yeah. a revolver, you had to keep it in your pocket. Yeah. And there's that uh, great um, there's that great example of what you just described as during the Iranian embassy siege that was eventually resolved by the SAS. Trevor Locke, it was Trevor Locke, wasn't it? Yes. Trevor yeah, Locke Trevor. was a, was a diplomat, diplomatic protection group. Um, officer who, who actually had a revolver on him, and the, the terrorists didn't even realise he had it. Uh, and no, they just made an assumption that British coppers didn't carry guns, and he wasn't going to show them it. Which is, <laughs> you know, um, but I mean, we weren't even allowed to call them guns. I don't know if you remember this, or whether it was still a case when <laughs> you joined. What did you call them if you weren't allowed to call them guns? You, if you had to, if you had to call for armed backup on the radio, you had you had to ask for someone to come to the scene with equipment. Uh -huh. yes, the word equipment was a code, was a, a secret police code for gun. 
Mm. Um, and I remember once, um, I, I say you never got shots course on, on, on uh, outer divisions, but I remember once I was sitting in the canteen and the duty sergeant came in with a clipboard and he said to one of the sort of guys with a reasonable amount of service, I was still a probationer, I thought, just out of my probationary period. Um, and uh, he said, what are you doing next week, mate? And he goes, um, uh, nothing. He said, we've not got any court cases or anything like that. He goes, no. He goes, right, mate, you're on a shots course starting Monday. And he goes, no, nah, it's not for me. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested, Sarge. He goes, really? He goes, no, nah, no. Nah, what, what do I want to carry a gun for? So is there anyone else? And he, and he looked around the room and nobody answered. And eventually he says to this other guy, you know, what are you doing next week? And he didn't have anything on. He said, well, you're on a shots course. And he went, all so right. That was, so that was the sole criteria. It's just basically yeah, yeah. nothing it else. Was, in, fact, in fact, I was, I was going to finish the story by saying, I realised, you know, you know, I, I, I knew that, you know, owning a gun made you a nut, cut, nut job, but you know, for a lot of people, so I, I didn't say anything. Although I would, I would probably have been eligible at that point to have had a shots course, and I went outside and I spoke to the sergeant as he walked away with his clipboard, and I said, "Sergeant," I said, um, "I said if if any more shots courses come, I'm 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 quite interested in one." I wouldn't have said it in front of all my colleagues, but you know, and he went, um, "Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll make a note of that." And he put his pen to. The, you know the the list the nominal list that he had and i'm pretty sure he just put the ink through my name exactly he's definitely not having a gun and, and that and that was the attitude if you were actually interested in carrying a firearm yeah. you shouldn't you shouldn't be allowed to do so mm. um and, uh, and of course now you have to to be a volunteer yeah, and yeah, you have yeah. to you know yeah. so it's completely reversed in that respect but i think in many in many ways um you know, there is still a, a, a much, to a much lesser extent now. I think, you know, firearms have now become a mainstream part of day-to-day -day policing. Yeah. We see armed response vehicles on the streets um, and the public are, are pretty used to it. But um, it's still a very, very small number of officers, isn't it, in terms of I the know. total? Well, I don't, I don't there, know what the percentage is, be. but... Well, there, there used to be a national percentage that each police force had to meet, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, I think it was about ten percent or something like that. Right. Uh, but the so so when I joined the firearms training wing, um, we there was about twenty nine thousand officers in the Met, and we were training four thousand eight hundred to a, a a pretty safe but fairly low standard uh, yep. on a revolver. Mm -hmm. um, now there's a similar amount of officers in the Met, um, and they're training two thousand. Right. So 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 you know. But obviously to a much oh, higher oh, level. To a much higher level, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, they're yeah. much more readily available. So those guns back in the 70s were just every police station in the Met had a gun safe with, like, four yeah. revolvers in it and uh, or more if it was a big station yeah. Uh, yeah. and some boxes of ammunition. And you had to rush back to the station to get that gun and yeah. the robbery happened. You know, but yeah. now, of course, they're out there patrolling. So. Yeah. I mean, um, it's worth pointing out just at this point, um, Tony, um, for anybody listening to this, um, Tony's had a very long uh, and eventful career um, and what I've done is rather than go try and cover all of it because it's just impossible um, I've I've put a load of material on my blog which is on the www.tjfbook.com website uh, I've put a blog on there last night with some links to uh, so Tony's uh, written a book um, called Lethal Force so I've put a link to the um, Amazon uh, if I'll, I'll take 10% for each of those books, Tony, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> and um, the uh, there's other bits and bobs there, other links there uh, regarding um, 
some YouTube videos, um, some various outputs of public inquiries, Wikipedia entries, etc. So if you're interested in reading a lot more about Tony uh, and his background, then I suggest you go and have a look at that page and, and then um, and, and ideally read his book because I've read his book and it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's very funny. You tell a funny story about when um, very, very early days. So this just goes to show how much things have changed. Um, back in the 70s, you uh, were invited uh, as a sort of instructor team, farms instructor team for the first time to go to Hereford and, and train with the SAS. And you describe this very sort of motley crew of people turning up in Hereford, you know, and, and all going out on the piss on the first night and then turning up in the gym and and almost uh, the, them almost killing you all in the gym. You know, it just goes to show how things have changed, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the age, the age gap. So, I mean, actually, it wasn't seventies; it was the eighties. So, I did eight, eight, I did, I did eight years um, sort of regular uniform police duty. Five of which were at my original police station um, at Lewisham. Um, two of which were obviously as a probationer, um, and then I joined the Special Patrol Group, uh, which obviously has now disbanded. The notorious mm-hmm. Special Patrol Group, uh, SPG, um, uh, and I did three years on that. And while I was on that, that's where I got my shots course. Um, and um, but just after I joined the SPG, because of Blair Peach and other things, they'd introduced a, a four-year tenure, so you could only stay in, the, in a, on a group for four years. Mm. And anticipating that it would take quite some time to go through the process, I applied for D11, which was the the central firearms wing training wing um, as a firearms instructor in um, in about 1982. Uh, did my course in 1983, um, and then and actually managed the whole process. Didn't take very long at all, and I and I joined the unit. And um, we were very much part timers. I mean, D department was training. You know, so D8 was recruit training, and D11 was firearms training. Um, and so our day to day job um, for three weeks out of out of every month was to be on an indoor range, sucking in lead, and, and training fat detectives off the flying squad and, 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 and plan drawers and, uh, you know, guys on the on the inquiry team, you know, uh, to, who'd been a shot since they'd been an 18-year-old probationer uh, on B division and who were now, you know, in the twilight of their service um, on an outer division somewhere, trained them on a use of a firearm. And then one week a month, we'd come back, you'd get given a great big gas power pager and you'd be part of the Metropolitan Police's specialist firearms response. Well, when I joined the team, my team consisted of two sergeants and four PCs. That was it. And, and as a 28-year-old, I was by far and away the youngest guy there. Most of them were well into their 40s, um, probably a couple of 50-year-olds. Most of them were ex-servicemen. Um, and most of them weren't coppers. Mm. You know, they, they'd actually, it, it was the perfect thing. When firearms training went live, proper firearms training went live in, the, in 1967, it was the perfect escape from day-to-day police work from a lot of guys that were very good firearms instructors and they were really nice guys um, and very proud and very professional about their particular role. But if you'd have told them they had to go back, put a, a Bobby's helmet on and walk the beat again, they'd have probably, you know, all gone sick. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so and so the, this, the, our crew, when we went to Hereford that first time, um, I don't know whether I mentioned it in the book or not, I think I did, but um, the reason we got beasted in the gym was because unbeknownst to us, our commander had gone to a meeting at Scotland Yard about three weeks previously where the um, 
CO of 22 Special Air Service Regiment had been present, and it was a discussion about response to counter-terrorism. Uh, and this commander, bearing in mind he was the commander in charge of the training school, and thereby for, by default in charge of us, said, well, we don't really need the SAS in London anymore because we've got that's, D11. That's definitely the wrong thing to say, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so, so we went up to Hereford. We got absolutely smashed around the gym and everything for, for, for the morning. I think we won a, we won a lot of uh, credibility back by our ability to shoot because whatever else, we were very good shots. Mm. And then we had to drive all the way up to Scotland uh, to do an exercise. Um, and um, when we got all the way up to Scotland, um, we were getting all our equipment out and we were loading our magazines with blank ammunition and putting blank firing attachments on the weapons and all the rest of it, testing our radios. And a very senior Scottish policeman comes up in full uniform, together with a man who I now know was the commander of 22 SA, or the CO of 22 SAS. And he goes, and uh, and who might you chaps be? And there we all are with our blue berets on and all the rest of it. And uh, my inspector goes, uh, oh, we're, the, uh, we're D11 firearms from uh, the Metropolitan Police. And he goes, oh, the Metropolitan Police in London, eh? He goes, so you're near policeman in Scotland then? And he went, I'm sorry, sir. He goes, so because you're not police officers in Scotland, do you have firearm certificates for those weapons? And he went, well, no. And he says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, if you put them away, I'll pretend I've never seen them. Oh, and he turned he turned around and winked at the CO of SAS yeah. and walked away. And so we literally had to do this 48-hour siege pointing our finger at a train where these hostages were. <laughs> and I was in a sniper position and they put a couple of SAS blokes in you have a stick? with me. No, yeah, no, I was just like, you know, sitting there and these two SAS blokes joined me and he went, oh, where's your gun, mate? You know? <laughs> and I went, mm. and they, they obviously, they were obviously in on the secret. Oh, dear. And there, there was a load of banter and he said, well, we've got some spare ones. We can lend you one if you want. And I went, no, you're all right, mate. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously things have moved on massively, haven't yeah. they? So, I mean, it's because you were you lived through all all these changes, and you know you fast forward through, you know the eighties and the nineties. You know when obviously the threat to uh, predominantly from a terrorist point of view is from the provisional IRA, as well as sort of a, a sort of motley collection of international terrorists, and and uh, and then all the way through sort of post nine eleven to the very real and ongoing threat from uh, Islamic fundamentalist extremism. Um, and it, it's 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 odd actually because I dare say that you and I have probably almost certainly worked on the same jobs, albeit from a very different Absolutely. point of view. Certainly Absolutely. the 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 pyra jobs, provisional IRA jobs of, of the 1990s. So I was very very much involved in in all of those jobs at those at that time. I think I actually saw you in a telephone box uh, <laughs> wearing a raincoat with an upside down newspaper with two holes in it. I think I'm pretty certain it was yeah, you. I don't think we were quite I don't think you we were quite as good as that to be fair. No uh, so I was I was involved in Operation Airlines uh, and Operation Tinnitus yep. which is yep. which is Tinnitus uh, which is sadly where Dermot O'Neill was was shot dead by one that, of you. That actually boys. happened when I was so that coincided um with uh, Mr. Condon. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, Kent, Kent's gain was the Mets' loss, wasn't it? Yeah. And he introduced tenure, uh, and so uh, when um, the, the, the guy that fired the shot was one of the guys off my team, but I was actually uh, back at Lewisham for fourteen months mm. driving the area car uh, because right. uh, he, he decided you could only stay, stay in a specialisation for sort All of right. ten years or so. So uh, I went back, did my penance. Yeah, dug my yeah. tunnel back. Dug, dug my tunnel back to SO19. And, yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's uh, so. Um, so when did you come back 
uh, after after your sort of period in the wilderness, so to speak? Oh, it, it was around about 94, 95 that I was out. So it was, yeah, I probably came back about 95, 96, I think. Right, okay. So um, yeah, so I was I was involved in operated on a few involved in Operation Petronel, which was a yes. dis- dissident IRA job. Yeah, uh, yeah. back sort of late. I remember late 90s I remember lots well. of the time sent, spent out of out of the Met because um, you know the we would work in support of SO13, and of course they had a national responsibility. Yeah, and it was always quite funny, really, because we'd drive. I remember going once driving up to for Christmas. I don't know if you remember this job, uh, but the intelligence was that a bomb come back yeah in, yeah, you know I was, what, yeah i right. was in that i was on that job I, I was up there for 16 hours a day um yeah. probably uh, i was doing i, I earned and you know what it's like over time when you're at dc it's like it's your yeah. bread and butter isn't it i yeah. was earning i was earning outrageous amounts of overtime on that job um yeah. but there's a funny story actually which i didn't include in my book but now you've mentioned it i'll tell a story when i was up on that job i won't talk about the, i won't talk about that you know the intelligence obviously because it's just not you know yeah but um uh i had my van um somebody tried to steal my van when i was still at, well i was inside it on that <laughs> job so uh, i was getting i was getting my i was getting my head down trying to get my head down um, in the back of the van in the middle of the night, stuck out in the wilds of nowhere. And I could hear this sound um, in the front, and I thought it was one of the lads messing about, you know. Anyway, next thing is um, the engine starts up, and this, the van goes off with me in the back of it. Um, in, 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 me, uh, in my seat. How did, how, how did this not reach the book? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, mate, there's so many stories that you just you can only write yeah. so many, can't you? So I, I woke up thinking, what the fuck? Somebody's stolen my van, and so I sort of, <laughs> so so I started banging on the front of the uh, compartment, um, the driver's compartment, and uh, and this bloke obviously absolutely shot himself, um, bricked and and then scarpered, and uh, so yeah, he'd done he'd done the driver's side door with a screwdriver, and then tried to nick the van with me in the back of it. But uh, but yeah no I was I was on that job so yeah the most boring well, job I, I remember you know that was a, a real money I, mean, I seem to remember it was just before Christmas so I, I, I just I remember going in to do a late turn shift at Old Street which was our operational base at the time uh, in the city or just north of the city and it was literally a case of um, right shove some wash kit um, in a bag uh, and uh, your sleeping bags and, and your ops kit stick it on a van uh, and we're off and um, at the time. If we were doing um, covert operations with SO13, we were using flying squad cars driven by a flying squad driver with a flying squad operator. Uh, We'd been fighting for some considerable time to get our own fleet of covert vehicles, and and it was jobs like this that resulted in us getting those. But I remember driving into the outskirts of um, and we saw a sign uh, for a TA hall, the local local Territorial Army hall, and someone got on the net and went, well, that'll be us then, because historically, whenever we did a job with SO13, Special Branch and the likes, we would all end up on the floor of some TA hall gym or in a, mm. on, in, in a huge warehouse on a freezing concrete floor in a sleeping bag. Um, and all the detectives would go off and stay in hotels, you know, and they thought we liked it. I'm sure they thought we liked sleeping on the floor. And uh, anyway, we, we drove in and we went to where we met the local Special Branch. They said, oh, have you got guns with you? And we said, well, that's kind of the idea. So we then had to get all our guns out, put them in their office, which they just said, oh, no one comes in here. 
you know, it's the, the SB office, no one coming. Yeah, they'll, they'll be all right. <laughs> and then this, we were led by a DC down in been there before it was a charming little town and yeah. we think Where, where's this taking us and he takes us to the nicest hotel going to the front this very opulent lobby where we're met by the sort of um the, you know the, the the manager who's got a big bunch of keys and uh, we just followed him off and uh, i get i just happened to be at the front talking to the dc and he goes well this room's yours and they handed me the key and i went in and the room was had no bed in it and it was like it wasn't even big enough to put a double bed in and i went mm. well, this is a bit strange and i looked around and then there was a door off of it and i went to that door and it was the bathroom and then there was another door and that went into this huge suite with a with its <laughs> with a drinks cabinet and a and a four poster bed and i remember going back to the door and 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 shouting across the hallway to my mate that got the room opposite and i'm saying look at this he goes no you look at this and i came into his room and there was a hot tub it was a huge hot tub. So we ended up, and the other half of the team who were covering the London end of it, in case the, the bad guys flew direct into London, they were sleeping in the, the old uh, transit cells at Lambeth Police Headquarters. Yeah. So so we had to fax down, because obviously you couldn't, you know, we took photographs of the whole team in this hot tub. <laughs> with a thumbs up uh, the thing is it's a it's a really it funny, it's a, it's really hard to explain to people because um my ds at the time i was so i was a surveillance photographer on special branch surveillance team and uh you know it was a very very strange life isn't it i mean it's just mm. like the best it's the best life uh you know and the worst life all at the same time sometimes you know it can be unbelievably dull and it's unbelie- great when something's happening, isn't it? unbelievably exciting yeah. as well you know yeah. and uh and, and that kind of everything in between and there's a lot as you know there's a lot of fun and games and a lot of silly pranks that go on and and what have you some of the story i mean like my brother my brother was uh was in special brunch uh, as well with me uh he's left the job he left the job and became a, a barrister of all things and um I stiffed a mass on operation. Um, one of the operations, I can't remember which one it was in London. Um, we were keeping an eye on a, uh, a lorry park uh, where we suspect the baddies were going to turn up. We needed um, somebody who was a shot. We'd run out of shots, base, run out of firearms officers, obviously. Um, uh, you know, you guys were fully, I was in an OP, I think, with one of your, you're not allowed to call them snipers, are you? What do you call them? Uh, riflemen. Rifle yeah, snipers, and, there we go. Yeah. So we, I was in, a, I was in an. You're probably not say, you're probably not allowed to say rifle per rifleman. Rifle, say rifle person. Oh, okay. Probably. So, I, so I was in, a, I was in a flat, um, you know, um, with my all my camera gear, um, and one of your guys with the biggest, nastiest looking rifle in the world. They needed someone to go into one of these lorries, um, uh, so that if 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 there was you know a, a problem, um, I can't remember the rationale, but anyway. So they were scratching around trying to find someone who was a shot. Um, and my brother was on protection at the time. So I rang him up and said, uh, could you do you couldn't do us a favor? Um, and and just, you know, it's only going to take a couple of hours or whatever. Um, if you can go into the back of this lorry, um, we just need one more firearms officer to do that. And he was like, Yeah, yeah, okay. So anyway, he went in and um he ended up getting completely stiffed because he was stuck in there for about 48 hours or something. And he was freezing cold. And 
bored stiff and didn't have a toilet and you know it's just terrible but anyway listen um we could talk all day about all these war stories and um and you know one day over a beer i'm sure we will but um where i want to get to with all of this is um given all of the stuff that you've been involved in over the years and the treatment that you kind of uh you know received uh, over a very very long period of time so bear, bear in mind, if you look at the sort of the timeline, so talk about the Azel Rodney shooting, and I, I don't want to go into the rights and the wrongs. I'm definitely not going to go into the rights and the wrongs of that in this podcast because that's not what this is about. Um, but but that, that shooting was in 2005. You ended up getting charged with murder and going to court, I believe, in 2014. Is that correct? I, got, I think I got charged in 14, went to court in 15. So right. it was okay. it was t- it was ten years from start to finish. So ten years, ten years, yeah. um, and and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but when that shooting took place, you were only a matter of months away from retirement. Is that right? It happened on the, it happened on the last day of April uh, two thousand and five, and my thirty years were up. Um, and in fact, I'd been recruited to work f- um, with uh, uh, an organisation that contained within the Foreign Office. Um, and I was due to retire on the 11th of August, 2005. Right. So I was literally, you know, a few months away from retirement. Right. So, so for anyone who's kind of listening to this, who doesn't, who's not a police officer, doesn't really understand this stuff. When you come up to the end of your 30 years or whatever it is, it might be 32, 33, whatever you've decided that you're going to go, yeah. um, you are super paranoid. Well, I was anyway, super paranoid about basically dropping in the ship, um, about doing anything that's going to cause you a problem, maybe, maybe cause your pension a problem, which would obviously then have a knock-on effect to your family and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I was in a very low-risk role in the last sort of 12 months of my career. I mean, I was a, I was a superintendent in the West Midlands. You know, the riskiest thing I was probably doing was signing off an awful lot of surveillance authorities and dealing with sort of threats to life kind of um assessment so i was doing an awful lot of stuff around authorities um but but in compared to what you were doing in the last 12 months of my service you were still putting yourself in very very risky situations weren't you well yeah i mean I, I, you know, we're all different aren't we and, and we all have sort of different outlook on stuff uh, and i'm just plain stupid really um I just loved doing what I was doing. And in, in, in all honesty, although my body was starting to tell me I was getting too old for it, I, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed doing what I was doing. And I really didn't want to give it up. And in point of fact, uh, as you probably know, as you come towards the end of your service, you start getting all of this literature come through from the Police Federation about your pension and about retirement. And I remember the only time anyone had ever discussed my pension with me um, was on day two. So it would have been the 12th of August, um, 1975, when some hairy old uh, guy came in and spoke to me and the rest of the recruits about our pension rights. Uh, he was obviously from the Federation. And, you know, I was 18 and a half, and I'm thinking, why, why are you telling me about this? You know, this 30 years is a lifetime away. I'm not interested. Um, and as I got nearer and nearer my retirement, you know, I'm now in my, in my 40s, I'm, I'm 48, I was getting all this literature through and I literally just put it into the bottom of my correspondence tray uh, and didn't even look at it. I was, I was pretty well in denial because I loved doing what I did. You know, it was what I lived for. It's what I got up every morning for. And so when I got involved in the shooting of Zell Rodney, I was immediately suspended 
uh, from carrying a firearm. Uh, but there were plenty of roles that I could fulfil uh, within the support team um, and the like. Um, and um, obviously, during the period that I was being investigated by the IPCC, and when I got my all clear... So, so sorry, Tony, Tony, were you allowed to retire then? Given that it was no, a matter of months, you weren't well, alive. No, no one told me I could, but right. I just sort of, I, I, I wasn't going to retire while the whole process was going on. I mean, I, I suppose if I'd have pushed it, there might have been a chance I could have done it, I suppose. I, don't, I, I didn't even really consider it. But the, the, the sequence of events was that while I was suspended, um, I was sent by the Foreign Office over to the United States to do a, a course with an agency over there mm. uh, that was sort of close protection, CQB, evasive mm. driving sort of stuff. Mm. which I had to do in order to fulfil this this job that I'd applied for, I'd been approached about. Um, and when I came back to the UK, having passed that, uh, they said, well, we can't start your vetting process until you've got an all clear from the IPCC. So that would have been in about late September, early October. And then in November, I got the all clear. The IPCC said that I'd acted um, lawfully and, and in accordance with my training and that they were going to recommend that there was no, there was, you know, I'd done no nothing further wrong. Action, no further action. But they were going to submit their findings to the Crown Prosecution Service for them to review it. So as soon as as soon as I got that clearance, two things happened. The Foreign Office started the vetting procedure, mm-hmm. um, but told me that even though they'd start the vetting procedure, they wouldn't give me clearance until the Crown Prosecution Service gave me clearance. But also, I was reinstated to full operational duty. So I went straight back on the teams with a gun going out doing the same type of work. Mm-hmm. Um, point of fact, I was I was suspended in, uh, on the last day of April. Um, and on the 21st, 22nd of June, two of my colleagues were suspended for the John Charles de Menezes incident. So we were, all three of us were in the sin bin together. Right. And we all got reinstated round about the same time. And, and literally within a few months, one of the two officers from uh, Stockwell got mm. involved in another fatal shooting. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just, you know, that people have, have, have all got a different level of risk that they're prepared to, ta- to take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, my dad used to say to me, you know, my dad, I, I discovered that my dad wasn't my dad in my late 40s, but mm. um, he, we were totally different characters. And although he was very proud of me being a policeman, he didn't, he didn't really get it at all. Um, and he used to say to me, you know, oh, you know, you, you be careful, son. And I'd go, Dad, if I wanted to be careful, I'd be a postman. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. to me, I joined to do an exciting There's a few job. angry dogs around, to be fair, for postman. But, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so, yeah, I didn't I didn't really, I didn't have that sort of wanting to avoid it. I think subliminally part of me wasn't really ready to retire, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. even even though I had this other job offer, which sounded very sexy, you know, kind of, mm. you know, places like Afghanistan, Iraq, doing sneaky beaky stuff. Um, mm. You know, I, I I was very comfortable on the teams. Mm. You know, I didn't really want to want to go, to be honest. Yeah. So there was there was obviously the IPCC of again for those who don't understand what that is, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, I believe, no longer exists as an organisation. It's now been taken replaced by the Independent Office of Police Conduct. Well, I believe it, that's what it's it, well, it, called now. It still does. It still does exist. They just changed the name. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's the same, so it's, same organisation. Different, uh, different, <laughs> um, same organisation. So they they invest. They did an independent investigation into your actions on that day. Uh, yeah. Gave you a sort of clean bill of health, so to speak. Um, but then, obviously, the um, public reaction or the media reaction of call it what you is, and this is an interesting point to say, you know, um, 
there's obviously a lot of controversy around these shootings quite you know in, inevitably and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing um, because we need to be transparent and held accountable as public servants particularly people who are carrying firearms but but then uh, that all changed didn't it um, there was a there was a public inquiry um, that was held some years later. Um, oh, if you if you go back just a little bit from yeah, that, yeah. in so so yeah. there was actually no controversy really about the Azel Romney shooting. It was you know considered by all of the, the management, um, you know the the uh, DPS, which is the Director of Professional Standards, the sort of internal affairs for you know those that aren't from a police background listening. Yeah. Um, they, 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 you know, that in their words, it was kosher. You know, I'd done everything yeah. right, and the IPCC agreed with that. Um, and I'd had the common sense. Uh, to, so those that don't know Azel Rodney, Azel Rodney was um, a career criminal, only a young guy, but he was wanted for two stabbings. He was part of a, an organised crime group, um, which was predominantly Afro-Caribbean, based in North London. And their main forte, apart from drugs dealing, was ripping off other drug dealers. And the intelligence was that Zell and two other guys were on their way to, um, were heavily armed and were on their way to rob and kill some Colombian drug dealers. Um, mm-hmm. um, and to be perfectly honest, I know that might sound a bit cruel, but nobody really cared about Zell Rodney, apart from, you know, those that were close to him, his mother in particular, obviously, uh, and his family. And um, what what made Zell Rodney controversial was the fact that we were acting on ripper intelligence for those that don't know what ripper is correct me if i'm wrong because i probably don't know particularly well either but it stands i think believe for the regulation of investigative powers act that's right and basically it covers um amongst other things technical surveillance Mm. um and it, it what it means is that unlike other countries any evidence that's obtained for instance by phone taps i'm not saying that Isel rodney's intelligence came from that route it may not have done or it may have done um but it's not admissible in a court of law and so 50% of my justification in shooting Azel Rodney was based on the intelligence I'd been briefed on. And none of that was admissible to a coroner. Because when they wrote the legislation, it never Which occurred. It doesn't to really them. help you, does it? No. So the coroner just looked at all these redacted statements and said, well, we, we can't put this in front of, I can't put this in front of a jury because the jury won't know, you know, what, what your mindset was. They won't know all the intelligence that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... The, the, the law basically had to be changed, and that's why it took so long. And eventually, I think they brought in some legislation which allowed a, a high court judge, uh, in the absence of a jury, to listen to the intelligence. And so basically do the same job as a coroner, but on his own um, and without a jury. Um, and so that was what the problem was. But the other problem was, and this was the biggest problem in my opinion, was that while it was no problem in the early stages, in the intervening years, we then had the Mark Duggan incident. Mm-hmm. And the Mark Duggan incident was almost identical. It was a young black career criminal with a gun on his way to commit criminal activity. Um, he was shot what, during an intervention to, to arrest him. But this time um, in a predominantly black area. And of course, we know that in 2011, we had riots that spread across the whole country mm-hmm. as a direct result of it. Yeah. So basically, my... Azel Rodney got lumped in with all of the controversy that uh, came out about Duggan. Right. Uh, and so I think that, so, so I, I personally think that when the public inquiry happened, um, you know, I think that the judge 
absolutely had Duggan and all the controversy that surrounded that, um, you know, in his head while he was while he was dealing with my case. Right. Uh, and certainly the press did. You know, like yeah. I said the press the press weren't interested in Israel Rodney at all until after Duggan. Mm. So um just talking about the press for a minute, the press, if you Google your name, um, you know, um the press seem to like to call you the Met's own serial killer, which um I believe didn't actually start off as a, a as a press kind of generated name. I believe that actually originated from a senior police officer, is that right? So yeah, so to understand it fully, you really you, my, my involvement with the press sort of goes back to my first um, shooting incident, which was um, a domestic siege where a woman had been murdered and a young child had been held hostage, uh, and I, I shot the suspect. And that was on uh, Boxing Day, nineteen eighty-five, um, and my name wasn't published at the time of the incident. I was just mm-hmm. described as a thirty-year-old police officer from the firearms unit. Mm-hmm. But we had no anonymity um, program or process in place in those days. And so when I gave evidence at the Old Bailey, sort of eight months later, nine months later, or whatever, I gave evidence in the box. Um, I was sworn in using my full name, and therefore my name became known to the press. Um, and not much was, was said, but I was named. Mm-hmm. 18 months after that incident, I was involved in my second shooting incident. And in this instance, it was... Um, it, it was I, I couldn't well I, I suppose it doesn't really surprise me but back then I was just aghast at the amount of attention it got I'd shot three suspects three armed robbers um, three white guys wearing balaclavas heavily armed holding a security guard hostage two of those suspects died uh, and one survived um, and for the first day after the incident the newspaper, it was the newspaper was full of it. Mm. And then two days afterwards, somehow my name was leaked to the press. Mm-hmm. Um, and the headlines the day after the incident were there was a there was a picture of a browning pistol that took up the whole front page of the sun. And the title was The Equalizer. Mm. You know, it was that type of you yeah, know crass macho nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then when my name was released, um, you know, there was just this feeding, feeding, feeding frenzy, right. um, and um, to such an extent that uh, they had to put security on my house. My family um, and I were sent away to America on holiday for, for three, four weeks to get us out of the country. Uh, and by the time I came back, things had calmed down, and, and I, I went back to full operational duties. And for you know the next eighteen years or however long it was. Um, my name never came up again. I was involved in yeah. some incidents. I never pulled the trigger or never fatally shot anyone, um, mm. but I was present when other, you know, when my, some of my colleagues did. But mm. by this point, partly uh, as a result of those IRA operations that you mm. talked about in the mid-90s, yeah. we now had a system whereby if you got involved in a shooting, you were given an alphanumeric anonymity code yeah. and provided the legal system allowed you to keep it because at the end of the day, it's up to magistrate or a judge to decide whether or not you know he'll grant you anonymity um so no one had heard of me um until um uh, the Azel rodney incident and even then no one had heard of me because i had the i had the um uh, the anonymity code of, of e7 echo 7 yeah yeah um and um while i had that anonymity um i had a 
I wouldn't call it an altercation. I had a, I had a conversation, actually a very civil, in many respects, conversation with a woman called Sue Akers. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if you've ever heard of her. I, I do, I do vaguely, uh, vaguely remember. What was, was she a commander? She was a commander at this point. She was a commander in charge of the Directorate of Professional Standards. So right. I'll say that again slowly for the benefit of everyone. The Directorate of Professional Standards. Mm-hmm. So she was in charge of the organisation that would um, investigate officers if, for instance, the, they were suspected of you know, corruption or criminality or, in this day and age, simply of making an inappropriate comment. Um, and if you were under investigation, you know, your future would very much be in her hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was in at uh, my base um, and I, I knew that there'd been a, a anti-terrorist operation the night before, but I wasn't involved in it. So I knew nothing of it. I, you know, I hadn't, you know, you don't ask, do you? If you're not mm-hmm. invited to the briefing, you don't, you don't need to know sort of thing. Yeah. I came in expecting the base to be pretty much empty except for my team to find that there were three team, three or four teams worth of guys all very tired waiting to go home yeah. um, and um, the DPS the director of, or director of professional standards were in the building as was the SIO from the IPCC yeah and the, the lads and uh, lasses were waiting to be um, spoken to by those two people before they would be released so that they could go home. By this stage, yeah. they'd probably been on duty 20-odd hours, I'm suspecting. Mm-hmm. So that happened. Everybody started to filter out the building. There was a few stragglers hanging on. And, and I noticed Sue Akers uh, on her mobile phone in the corridor on the third floor, which is where, where our, our team was based. Mm-hmm. And she was standing right next to our tea room. So I went in and had a chat with a few people, made myself a cup of coffee, and I'm standing by the door waiting to speak to Sue Akers. Mm-hmm. And the guys obviously realised that I was hovering. And then when she put her phone down, I went up to her and I said, oh, excuse me, Ron. I said, um, I know you're very busy. I said, but you're dealing with my case and I'm wondering if I could have a quick word with you. So she said, well, by this time, we're shaking hands. So she said, sorry, and you are? And I said, Tony Long. And she went, oh, Tony. She said, the Met's very own serial killer. Oh, God. Bearing in mind, she's probably the second or third most senior policewoman in the Metropolitan Police, an organisation of 30,000 officers at this time. Mm. Um, she, she is what she is. You know, she's the DPS commander. Yeah. So, I, But I, I chose to ignore it. But I looked over her shoulder and there was about two or three guys standing in the doorway of the, of the tea room. And their eyebrows were like sort of, you know, shaking, shaking their <laughs> yeah. heads. Yeah. yeah, they were like, what the, f-? you know. Yeah. Anyway, go on. So, so we, we carried on the conversation and uh, and it was really, to, really the bones of it was in your position at DPS, you know, if you've got any contacts, can tell me, you know, where the CPS are with their, with their review of the case. Because, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to be signed off so that I can go and join um, this organisation, you know, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Yeah. So she said, oh, so I'm aware of that, she said. And, you know, she said, oh, you know what I'm, I'm conscious of is that, you know, I don't want to to get on their case and, and find, you know, that it it has a the wrong effect, you know, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it was all very polite, all very civil. And I said, well, Mum, you know, anything that you could do to sort of smooth things along, that would be greatly appreciated. And I said, I just wanted to basically introduce myself so that you had a, a face to put to the name. Yeah. And I put my hand out again and we're shaking hands. And she said, oh, no, that's great. She said, I... I can't wait to go back to the office and tell everyone I've actually met Met's own serial killer. Oh, she said it a second time. So mm-hmm. then I said, I don't think it's a good idea you call me that, Mum, do you? Yeah. At which point uh, she says, oh, don't worry about that, Tony. It's just a nickname we've got for you in the office. Yeah. 
which makes oh. it all the oh, work, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, that's so, fine. It's probably, so it's probably worth um, just in a moment, we'll just talk about what it's like to have to get on with your life with something like this hanging over you. And I just think it's worth saying, making this really, really clear, really, really clear that, that we take no pleasure as a service, as a police service, we take no pleasure whatsoever when people die, um, particularly in, in a situation like this, no pleasure whatsoever. Um, and it's probably, you know, so we'll come on in a minute, just talk about how, how it is that you kind of get on with your life when you've got something that's hanging over you for such a long period of time. But what I want to do is just touch on, um, just put all of this into sort of context, really, in terms of where does the UK or England and Wales specifically sit in terms of fatal shootings compared to other countries in the world? So I've done a bit of digging on this. Uh, and this is what really I find very, very hard to square this, these statistics with the level of media outrage. That's what I'm going to... The level of media outrage rage that follows on from the fatal shooting uh, by the police is is really I think slightly off the scale and um, but what what that doesn't really seem to equate to is the very 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 low numbers of fatal shootings um, in the UK compared to other countries in the world so I find some statistics and uh, it compares the numbers of uh, fatal police killings um, per 10 million of the population and uh, in terms of the statistics that are currently available, the UK sits as the fifth lowest country in the world for the numbers of fatal police shootings. Uh, currently, it has a rate of 0.5 deaths per 10 million of the population. The only countries that are lower globally are Poland, Japan, Switzerland and Denmark. Um, unsurprisingly, the highest numbers, the highest, uh, not, a, not a great uh, accolade to have is Venezuela, that has uh, 1,633 1, deaths per 10 million. So that's the highest numbers in the world. Uh, the USA currently has uh, 28 uh, deaths per 10 million. Um, and interestingly, New Zealand, I mean, New Zealand's got a tiny population, hasn't it? But even so, New Zealand has 2.1 deaths per 10 million of the population. So just to check my, um, make sure I wasn't kind of um, barking up the wrong tree on this one. I actually went on to the Inquest website. Now, Inquest, for those who don't know what they do, or a, I'll describe what they, how they describe themselves on their website. Inquest is the only charity providing expertise on state-related deaths and their investigation to bereaved people, lawyers, ad, uh, advice and support agencies. So they are, their whole sort of reason for being is to kind of look at these issues. And, and, and I looked at the stats that Inquest put on their website, which entirely back up the stats that I've already described. And I did a very quick, um, on an Excel spreadsheet, uh, looked at the numbers of deaths in England and Wales between 2014 and 2020. So in 2014, there was one, 2015, three, 2016, four, 2017, six, 2018, one, 2019, three, 
and 2023, which gives an average over a seven year period of 0.5 fatal shootings by police per 10 million of the population. So I suppose going back to the reason why I wrote the book, there is a definite sense in my head, and I think a lot of police officers' heads, that the media are responsible for generating this image that the UK police behave in a heavy-handed uh, authoritarian way, when actually the statistics do not in any way bear that out. So, so why, Tony, I'll ask you the question then, why do you think that is? Um, you started me on my favourite subject. Um, you know, since since uh, the trial, um, I've had to um, learn to live with and communicate with journalists um, for the first time, really. I, you know, I never had any occasion, really, to, to speak to journalists at all. Well, that's not altogether true. I remember once um, when this subject was raised in the late 1980s, Myself and another officer who had been involved in the shooting were approached by the Met uh, Police um, uh, Press Bureau uh, and asked if we were prepared to do an interview with what they described as a friendly journalist, very pro-police, Tony, um, who wants to do an article about what it's like as an armed police officer and, you know, to, to have to take life and, 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 and all the implications around it. And, uh, I mean, to be fair, we were kind of volunteered by our unit commander who thought that it would be a good thing. And we sat down with this guy, you know, over coffee at, at Scotland Yard or around the corner from Scotland Yard uh, in a police building with um, a senior member of the press bureau in attendance to sort of act as our, you know, chaperone, chaperone, exactly. Um, and we gave this interview and I don't think any of it, either of us said anything remotely outrageous. Um, but when I read it, it was just traumatized it was just you know he'd take, taken some some tiny word that you wouldn't even think you know was relevant and and turned it into something that you know added to this image that that he wanted to portray um and it just made me realize what i kind of already knew anyway you know if you're a police officer um you know particularly somewhere like london um during your service you will have been involved in many many newsworthy incidents i'm not talking about police shootings i might just be talking about being at a big demonstration uptown or or being at the scene of a murder or whatever it might be. Uh, and I don't think there's many police officers, you know, dead or alive, that could actually say they dealt with an incident and then read about it in the newspaper the following day and went, what? Spot on. It's mm. <laughs> absolutely exactly what it happened because... Yeah. Very, very rare, isn't it? If a police officer was proved to have lied in the witness box or if a member of par Parliament stood up um, and it was proved that, you know, what he'd said in the House of Parliament was a lie, the people that would have that policeman and that MP's testicles in their hands would be, mm. be the press. Mm. Outrageous, you know, mm. policeman lies, outrageous, Member of Parliament lies. Journalists, not all of them, but a high percentage of them, lie like a cheap watch. Mm. They're not interested in stuff. They're just interested in dramatising it. I once spoke mm. to a... a, a a journalist, and he told me a story. I can't remember whether he said it related to him or whether it related to a friend of his, but he just started working for the Daily Mail. And he was asked to go and, you know, report on something, which he did. And he was absolutely delighted to find that the editor would, you know, hadn't just thrown it on the floor and it was actually going to go in the following day as mm. part of a news piece. 
Um, and he gets calls to speak to the editor and he goes in thinking he's going to get a pat on the back and the editor says, don't ever do that again. Mm. And this is the Daily Mail. He goes, mm-hmm. um, he said, uh, I'm going to let it go this time, he said, because it's your first one, he said, but remember, always remember everything you write for this newspaper. Your job is to leave the reader angry. Uh. And I've just, I've just had some amazing shite written about me over mm. the years. Um, and, and a lot of it comes from, so we were talking about Sue Akers. Um, what eventually happened was a couple of years later, that gets leaked to the press, that the, the fact that she was taken to task over it. Right. Um, and I was painted as this, you know, uh, I can't remember the name of the paper now, but I was painted as this typical, you know, money-grabbing policeman mm-hmm. that, you know, oh, he's a, he goes around killing people, but he gets offended when people call him a serial killer, you know. Yeah, and actually yeah. the story about how she was taken to task, I won't go into now because it, it's lengthy. But mm. basically the reason she got taken to task is that all I wanted was an apology and she yeah. wouldn't apologise. Yeah. Um, and she actually said at one point, um, oh, I may have said the word serial and I may have used the word killer, but but not together in the same mm. sentence. I said, well, I'll tell you what, you know, you mm. formulate a sentence now which has got the word serial and killer in it. But mm. you know, it's just nonsense. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I, it's, I just a, a, it's just an unbelievable arrogance there, but, isn't there? But but the issue is, is that who could foresee at that stage that 10 years down the line I would be charged with murder? Mm. And and who could see that all of that stuff is all there on the internet? Yeah, yeah. To be yeah. found. You know, yeah. the jurors were told, right, you're not to look at the internet or do any research in relation oh, yeah, to good, this good case. With that, yeah. But yeah, exactly that. Um, there was another instance where uh, I, I mentioned earlier that one of the John Charles de Menezes guys got involved in another shooting. I think it was the male did this piece that was absolutely outraged. You know, he said, oh, how could a you know a killer like this who's already killed once be allowed out on the street to do the same thing again? You know, um, and um, so the News of the World, God bless them, decided mm-hmm. to do a pro article citing me as an example of someone who'd been involved in by this stage, three shootings. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do that, they approached the Met Press Bureau. And the Press Bureau said, well, you do realise that you can't write about him because he's got anonymity. Oh, right. So they were put in touch with the Police Federation lawyers who rang me up and said, look, they're going to write an article about you. They're going to name you. And I said, well, they can't. He said, well, that's what we've told them. So they then followed 24-hour, because obviously the, the, the News of the World was posted on a Sunday um, or was you know published on a Sunday. Um, I got told this Friday evening when I was trying to um, rebuild a broken relationship with a girlfriend by spending a lot of money in a in a hotel, and to, you know it was our last mm. the last chance hotel to sort out our relationship. And the biggest issue in our relationship was my job and the fact that I was always you know dashing mm. off you know, when the pager went off. And so right in the middle of a semi romantic meal, my phone goes and it's the lawyer saying, "Right, this is this is what's happening." So I then spent the next twenty four hours every hour on the hour getting a phone call saying right what they're saying is this they've heard th- th- this and they want to call you this no you know no they can't call me that blah blah blah, blah. and eventually they were obviously at the deadline and they had to make mm-hmm. a decision and they said to my lawyer said to them that oh, they said oh we understand that he's known as the met's own serial killer so my lawyer says no one senior officer called him that and was taken to task over it and mm-hmm. if you print that, we will take you to task over it. Mm-hmm. So they're all right, okay, okay. How would it be then if we just call him Tony? So I get a phone call saying, look, you know, 
the deadline's there. They want to publish tomorrow. They're, they're saying they'll, they'll just call you by your first name. And I'm kind of worn down by this stage. And I went, you know what? Just mm. let them do it. Let them call me Tony. That's it. Yeah. Fine. As yeah, long yeah. as there's nothing else. First thing the following morning, I go down to the news agents. I pick up a copy of the News of the World to find that I'm not Tony. I'm Dirty Tony. Oh, God. They've actually put uh, the officer, known in the dark humour of his uh, colleagues from the specialist firearms teams as Dirty Tony. And my girlfriend, who's a civilian, she's going, I didn't know you were called Dirty. Why do they call you Dirty? And I'm like, they don't. They don't call me Dirty. They've just made it up. And yeah. that's what they do. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it happens all the time. So as if it's not bad enough having to um, be put into these extremely stressful situations um, and which which in all likelihood may, may not very, very rarely, thank God, but may end up with someone being shot and losing their life as if that's not stressful enough then you've got all of this kind of nonsense going on. So in terms of just going back to my point earlier on, how do you, how did you find, what were your sort of, for want of a better word, coping strategies for getting on with your life when all of this stuff is going on in the background? Um, I, I get this asked quite a lot. My, my son um, is a sergeant in the Royal Marines. Um, and uh, for a period of time, he was um, a private military contractor. He left the Marines and became a private military contact in Iraq. Um, uh, and he's uh, been in more firefights than you can shake a stick at. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's almost, well, he, he has had to take life. Um, and we're both sort of cut from the same cloth, I think. We, we sit there and we've talked about it. And we've actually said, well, is there something wrong with us? But, you know, we're not. You know, adversely affected by this, and that we, don't, you know, we we seem we we seem to just cope with having to do that task, um, and, and, and without getting emotional about it. And um, we both decided that we're not. You know, we're just normal people with you know wives and kids, and, and mm-hmm. we, we we just get on with things. Um, and uh, we both put it down to training. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people that go firearms training as police officers, um, but. But it's it's a nice day out, mm. you know. They get to they get to shoot two munition paint rounds at each other, and, and yeah. like basically, you know, it's grown up children's, you know, cowboys and Indians. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They kind of think, well, it's never going to happen to me, mm. um, you know. And particularly, you know, officers that are, are armed, but you know, they're either policing an area which has a, a ridiculously low crime rate, or mm. they're doing some mundane protection role where they're standing outside of a building, um, and, you know, and and they think it's never going to happen to them, mm. you know. And and when I when I train, or when I used to train, I I I'd live it, you know. For mm. that for that you know, thirty second, you know, thirty minute exercise, I was in a real life situation. Yeah. You know, the 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 bad guy that was wearing protective you know face mask so he didn't lose his eye with a paintball was a real bad guy, mm. you know. And when I shot him, he actually died. You know, and, mm. I, and I took it enormously seriously. Mm. Um, and I remember guys saying to me, "Bloody hell, Tony, you were in you were in the moment there, weren't you?" You know, mm. you know, because I was shouting at the top of my voice for support, or telling people I was reloading, or you know, telling people to cover left, or whatever it might be. You know, word, you know, voice commands, and I was shouting out the top of my voice. Where you, I would run training because you know a good mm. percentage of my time was still spent as a firearms instructor training other people how to do it, and you could see that people were almost embarrassed to shout on police, you know, because they mm. just felt a bit silly and, you know, yeah. and, 
I think if you've got a mindset that it's not going to happen to you, then you potentially are on the first steps to it being a problem if it ever does happen yeah. to you. Well, I've heard that before. I've heard um, uh, quite a few psychologists describing how the people who tend to be more vulnerable to PTSD are the ones who haven't, as you say, really considered the likelihood of bad having to deal with bad stuff and the, the ones who are, and there's something definitely here around i think how we prepare police officers and people who work in the emergency services to deal with the nasty stuff is to is to talk just to kind of make them really really aware of all this kind of stuff that they're going to have to deal with uh, in in the in the sort of almost almost going over the top you know in terms of saying this is going to happen to you so when it does happen don't be too surprised, you know. I, in my book, there's a, I can't remember what the chapter's called now, but I think I think I called it my Anna Cerebris. And after my second shoot in 1987, um, I went straight back to operational duties. Literally the next day, I was issued a new new Browning because my, my Browning had been seized by the inquiry team by the detectives, uh, and I was straight back on operational duties again. Um, and then um, I, I went off on holiday to the states. Uh, I came back. Everything was hunky dory. The trial happened. Um, and the uh, surviving armed robbers were convicted. Then there was the uh, inquest, and I gave evidence at the inquest, and uh, they came back with a verdict of lawful killing. Uh, and to me, that was it. That was job done now. I can put that behind me and move on. Hmm. But the very next day, I was called up to see my chief superintendent and said, all right, you know, now, now that it's all over time, you need to look at your career. You know, and warning bells started to ring. And he said, oh, the chief medical officer wants to um, wants you to go and see a psychiatrist. I said, well, that's very funny because over a year ago when the incident happened, he wanted me to see a psychiatrist. And when I came back from the United States and went to see him, he said, um, so how are you feeling? I said, I'm fine. He said, any nightmares, anything like that? I went, no. He goes, well, you're a big, strong chap. You don't need to see a psychiatrist, do you? Off you go. Mm. And here we are. You know, a year later, after all the trials dealt with and everything else, and he now wants to, mm. he now wants to interview me. You know, what's what's the difference? Mm. So, smelling a bit of a rat, I volunteered to come off of operational duties, thinking that once I'd seen the psychiatrist and ticked all the satisfactory boxes, I could then come back. But I didn't want my colleagues and the rest of the world thinking that I'd gone and seen a psychiatrist and then been, you know, decided I was mad and mm. <laughs> taken me off of. Uh, off of operational duties. But what I found was once I'd taken myself off ops, I couldn't get back on again. And I had this mm. one year, two year period where literally everything I turned, everything I touched seemed to turn to shit. Mm. And, and it made me realize that the, the, the very people that the police officer should be able to look to for support, i.e. their senior management, were actually causing me more stress mm. than, than the actual act of having to kill someone. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the way oh, in which yeah, they well, dealt yeah. with it was 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 awful. I, I um, you know, I and, and your your experience um, was very very different to mine. Your career was very different to mine. But I I totally understand. I totally recognise what you're saying there. That because I'd say that out of all of the things that I dealt with in the police over thirty years, the things that stressed me out more than anything else was actually dealing with some of the bosses. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember I remember having seen the psychiatrist. I, I had to go. I think I said the three sessions there was no set amount of sessions but I think I did three sessions and I sat down with this old guy who was an ex um second world war uh spitfire pilot you know he'd flown in the battle of britain 
and as a young man and uh, he was a psychiatrist and, and we just got on like a house on fire and we just talked about all sorts of things uh you know the the, the, the uh, sessions went really quickly and on the end of the third session he said look tony he goes i'm thoroughly enjoying our conversations he said but there's absolutely no reason for, for you to be here you, you seem to be coping with everything fine yeah i don't need to see you again yeah so he said i'll send a report to the chief medical officer and um and, and that'll be that so i went and saw my chief superintendent and said um right, boss, I want to come back on ops. And he said, why is that? And I said, well, I've had my last session with a psychiatrist. He's happy that I'm, I'm good to go. And he goes, well, Tony, he said, uh, you've got to realise that you'll never carry a gun again. And I went, well, why is that? And he went, come on, Tony, you've got to realise that you're a political embarrassment to the Metropolitan Police. Oh, brilliant. Cheers for so that. I, so I then got summoned back to see the CMO, um, expecting it to be about the psychiatrist. And he said, right, he said, you've got the worst hearing of any police officer in the Metropolitan Police you can never carry a gun again, and I'm going to send you back to being a regular Bobby on the beat. And it was just like, right, okay. And it was just it, that that period where, hmm. you know, it, it was absolutely. I'd, I'd rather they had the honesty to go, you know, go. We don't want to see you again. You know, yeah. it, we're never going to give you a gun. Get used to it, uh, Fox Rasker. I'd yeah. rather they did that than than try to use the chief medical officer. To do yeah. their dirty work for them, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it was just—it was pathetic. In the last yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. You know. So, just to sort of change the subject slightly, um, but definitely kind of related. And um, one of the things that I find very weird—I'll be honest with you—is the again staying with the sort of media a little bit here. Um, what strikes me as being very odd is the difference, the contrast. You're going to talk about the line of duty, are you? No, but it's that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Honestly, don't start me on that. Start me on bloody line of duty. What a nonsense that is. But um, one of the things that really um, strikes me as odd is the difference between the the reaction when police officers kill terrorists. Yeah. I mean, I mean proper terrorists, you know. Um, versus the reaction when they kill armed criminals. Because um, when you look at the London Bridge um, incident as a really good example of that, so you've got three marauding terrorists stabbing indiscriminate members of the public indiscriminately. Um, the balloon goes up, obviously. Um, City of London armed response vehicle turns up all three terrorists dead in, I don't know, I think something like five seconds or something like that. Five. So, so the tactics, all the tactics that have been developed over the years to deal with these sorts of issues, um, clearly working really, really well. Those police officers were treated as heroes, weren't they? I think fair Absolutely. boxes of um, chocolates and flowers and God knows what else turning up at, you know, I mean, police when officers. Lee, the, the three ARV officers that were involved in the shooting of Lee Rigby's killers, um, the next day received, um, each one of them received a hamper from the Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very, very, very strange. So contrast that with issues like um, Mark Duggan, um, Azel Rodney, uh, and there's there's others as well, and you know, but it just seems um, when when the police shoot crim armed criminals who are are not nice people, we're not you know these are not these are not nice people. You wouldn't want to invite them to your barbecue. It just seems a bit odd. What what's your take on all of on all of that? Well, so I think what it is, it's it's you know we live in a, a very liberal society, much more liberal than I think you know most of us actually realise. You know, we've got a, a Tory party 
government, which are sort of right of centre. Uh, but our right of centre, if you compare it with, say, a lot of European countries, is is pretty left of centre. You know, we're very, we're very um, we're very very liberal, and the whole concept of, of shooting anybody or the police shooting anybody is, um, you know, it's against our it's against our way of life, if you like. Uh, to sum it up, um, the uh, judge at the uh, inquiry into the shooting of, of Zell Rodney, who decided that I'd acted unlawfully, uh, one of the opening lines in his very large, very comprehensive report was, it's the job of the police service in the United Kingdom to um, protect the public, not kill them. And, and I think that tells you an awful lot about the mindset of, you know, the liberal elite that run this country. Mm. Um, now, it seems that the liberal press, the, the, the liberal politicians, you know, everyone seems to be perfectly happy for the police to shoot and kill suspects if they've allowed or if suspects have, have managed to kill other people first. Hmm. So my my word of advice to any AFO in the country is just, just let them kill a few people first and that will make everything you do right. Because actually, you know, we talk about, you know, proper terrorists. Um, you know, I would, I would say, you know, the IRA that we were both dealing with in mm. um, in the 1990s were proper terrorists. Yeah. Um, you know, that those that did, you know, that blew themselves up on the on the underground train at 7-7 um, and, and attempted to do 21-7 are proper terrorists. Um, a lot of the terrorists we're dealing with now, you know, particularly the individual ones, um, if, if they didn't have the label terrorist attached to them, they would just be emotionally disturbed people yeah. and there would be a public outcry if they were to be shot by police. Mm. Um, but it, it does seem that if it's a criminal matter um, or if the police have in any way acted preemptively, in other words, they've saved lives by shooting the suspect before he manages to kill anyone, then, then you're the bad guy. Um, whereas if you shoot someone after they've killed some people uh, and you can attach the label terrorist to them, um, then, then it's a totally different ball game, and it, and it is a very, very bizarre. Yeah. So there was, a, there was a, there was an interesting um, controversy. Um, so twenty one seven again for anybody listening, this is the second um, unsuccessful terrorist attack uh, on the London tube system that um, tragically resulted in the fatal shooting of John Charles de Menezes um, by your colleagues in the Met, uh, mistaken. Uh, mistakenly shot, um, believing he was a suicide bomber. There was there was then a, a sort of a national manhunt, effectively looking for outstanding individuals from what was you know believed to be a a uh, terrorist cell. And one of those individuals was tracked down to an address in Birmingham. Um, and th- by that stage, I was in the West Midlands Police. Yeah, I remember this incident, yeah. Um, and and that particular individual was confronted confronted by firearms officers, by West Midlands police firearms officers, wearing, I believe, now I, I wasn't there, um, but I believe he was wearing a rucksack, stood in a bath, I believe. Um, and when the officers went through the door, um, you know, it could very easily have been a, a kind of a bomb, um, but they made a decision to taser him. And they received, the West Midlands police received um, quite a lot of criticism actually after that for not shooting him. Um, so you know it, it's it's a it's a funny one, isn't it? It just feels as if well. It's interesting, you know. I, I said to you, the the the, the guys that shot John Charles de Menezes um, were in the sin bin with me uh, when I was suspended for Israel Rodney, 
Um, and I was suspended from April around to about November. Um, and they were suspended from late June, about 27th of June. Uh, no, sorry, 22nd of June, uh, round about. But we both, we all got reinstated at around about the same time. So in real terms, probably the most controversial shoot in this country has, has, has ever had, and, and hopefully the last, um, the officers were actually suspended for less time Mm. Um, than I was for shooting uh, an armed criminal. Yeah, it's a very strange, very strange, it, isn't it? it? It is very, very strange. And, um, you know, I think when you look at... Our, we're obsessed with terrorism. You know, yes, it's it's tragic when, you know, somebody who's just been released from prison and who's been followed by a, a Met Police surveillance team mm. manages to get into a shop, steal a knife, come straight out in the street and start stabbing people and, and mm. fatally... You know, and then and then get shot by police. Of course, that is tragic. How many people are getting stabbed? How many young criminals are getting stabbed by other young criminals? Or well, how mm. many innocent young people are getting mm. stabbed by criminals yeah. armed with knives or shot yeah. in yeah. in London or in our major cities on a weekly basis? Mm. And yeah. yeah, if we were to shoot one of those, mm. it would be. But is that not more of a terrorist problem? Yeah, it's than someone who just someone who's doing it in the name of Islam. It's all definitely, of a uh, it's definitely a very strange situation, isn't it? Um, yeah. And again, I've got to be ever so careful. I don't want to go into the rights and the wrongs because I think it's a very, very complex situation, isn't it? Um, but but certainly, if you were to just to do a tally of deaths as a result, violent deaths on the street um, as a result of um stabbings and shootings that are sort of gang related let's call it that yeah. gang or criminal related versus deaths that are terrorist related those that are gang and criminal related are way 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 more i don't i, I wouldn't even like and to far, guess what the factor far more, would be and far more regular as well yes, exactly exactly Someone told me the statistic, and I don't know how true it is, so it might be worth you uh, you, you googling it or your listeners googling to it. But in two thousand and um, uh, two thousand five, the, the year I shot Zell Rodney, there was only one other person shot by police in the whole country, to the best of my knowledge, and that was John Charles de Menezes. Mm. But in the same year, I think it's something about something ridiculously high, like twenty one people were killed by police cars. Uh, on route to emergency calls, mm. yeah. uh, and you think to yourself, you know, that, that, they, that, that wasn't a quick death, probably. You know, you probably got mm. thrown forty foot in the air, probably in a life support machine for you know a couple of months before they, some of them passed away. You know, uh, but the, the fact that it was a deliberate act to, to mm. shoot somebody who was doing yeah. something wrong yeah. Um, is, you know, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a very strange one. Tony, um, just just before we kind of wrap up, um, as you know, I've written a book, which I've now got a publisher for, um, and uh, the the main sort of I suppose thrust of that book is that um, you know I've got a great love for police policing in the UK, a great love for police officers. Um, you know, spent you know thirty years of my life, uh, you know, and I wasn't hiding during that time. I was kind of in the thick of it for quite a lot of it. Um, but it does definitely feel to me and a lot a lot of police officers I speak to past and present that policing in the UK is becoming almost impossible um, because of the level of cr continuous criticism 
um, that they are under. And my fear is that young and or inexperienced police officers joining the service now, uh, and those already in and have been in for a while, my fear is that their heads are going to go down really badly. And and my 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 you know my you know as well as worrying about them. I actually think that the public, as a result of that, are going to be put at a lot more risk because of it. So, I don't know what your take on that. You know, is is there? Do you think there's a what needs to change? Is there a, is there a solution to that? Do you think? Well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I, I'm, I'm absolutely with you on this. It's almost like um, you know that there is some sort of sinister move by the media, by you know certain politicians. Um, uh, and other people to completely undermine uh, the British police uh, at every move. And of course, there's this huge link, you know, where you know we saw the way you know British policing was looked upon through the same microscope that American policing was looked upon as a result of the George Floyd incident. Mm. And we've already, you know, said that you know there's huge differences. Whenever they talk about arming police, for instance, they always talk about comparison with, oh, we don't want to be like America. Well, I, I looked some statistics up the other day. Something appeared on Instagram. Um, and in one week recently in Chicago, which is a city of um, two and a half million, just over two and a half million, they had 99 people shot in one week, of which 20 died. Yeah. By, poli by police? By, no, no, no. This is just a just shot. This, just this, shot. this, this yeah. is just okay. shot. Um, in 2018, which is the latest statistics I could find for London, there were 92 murders in total for a city of nine million people. Yeah. So, yeah. so there are more people shot in a week in Chicago than there are killed in a year in London, a city almost, you know, over twice the size. And out of those 92 people who were murdered in London, only 11 were murdered by by guns. Yeah. And, and yet there's this rush to compare us. You know, why aren't we comparing armed policing in the UK or policing in the UK with policing in Holland? Yeah, or New Zealand or, or, or Sweden or New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's that sort of thing. And there's this sort of perception. And actually, if you dig down into the statistics in the United States as well, there's this perception that people over here, including a lot of British police officers have, that, you know, American cops are bloodthirsty killers, you know, who just go out on the street looking to shoot young black men. When you look at the percentages of, of people, of young black men that are in fact shot by police frankly it is you know it's smaller than the percentages that you know the 0.5 that you were talking about mm, yeah. earlier when you look yeah, at yeah. sort of the population and the amount yeah. of crime because out of those 0.5 you're talking about obviously uh, i don't really want to get into the whole no, no, ethnicity no, but, thing but, because no, i just think it's no, no. it's 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 almost become no, but, a subject that but, you just but, can't but, even but talk point, about no. well no exactly but i think i think that's the very reason we should talk about it and i think the problem is is that you know there is this comparison you know, you know, talking about defunding the police in, in the United yeah. States. And there's this sort of sort of underground sort of subversive move to do exactly the same here in the UK, I think, you know, yeah, by, yeah. But by by legal means. And I think it, it is, A, it's a, it's a false narrative. It's a mm. completely false narrative, you know, and it leads people to believe, and your favourite TV drama does exactly the same, but subliminally <laughs> it's telling people that there's a huge corruption problem and yeah. actually, you know, that the police should be putting more attention into stopping criminality within the police than they are outside. And, yeah. and we, we know that it's all nonsense. And I, I, I put something on Instagram a while back, just, went just after the the, um, uh, the, the the stuff that happened in Clapham Common. And I said, look, you know, police officers reading this, you need to know that the silent majority are behind you. Yeah. 
yeah. sadly they're called silent they're called silent for a reason yeah you know yeah, yeah. unless you unless you want to unless you want to talk about you know messing around with the football league nobody's yeah. going to get upset and start shouting you know yeah yeah and that's the um, thing isn't it i mean that's that's what the, it's very very obvious to me that uh you know not all the media you know there's some very no. good people out there as well very good but a lot of them do not speak for the majority of people in the uk no, they and, build a, uh, they build a perception that just isn't the case, and I think, um, you know, going back to what you were saying about, um, you know, I remember, uh, you know, the, the title of your book or the title yeah. of your podcast. I remember being told those three words um, the day I arrived at Lewisham in in uh, late nineteen seventy five. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, and and it's been around for many many years. Um, you know, I think the job is truly effed now. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but since I wrote my book. Um, I found myself acting as a, and a lot of people have got in touch with me, young people that are either thinking about joining the police or have joined the police and want to get into the firearm side of things of contacting me. And I found myself as a sort of a, you know, unofficial mentor to, mm. to some of them. And a lot of them who were thinking about joining the police have gone on to join the police. Some of them were thinking about becoming authorised firearms officers have become authorised firearms officers. And their reality is different to our reality. You know, mm, their, yeah. their, their job is, by our standards, their job is truly and utterly... Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but But um, by their standards, in their world, because it's what they're used to, it's what yeah. they've grown up with. Yeah, yeah. So there'll always be young, enthusiastic officers yeah. joining who want to yeah. do the job. And just, on, and just on that one, Tony, do, do, I, do I actually believe um, that the job's fucked genuinely? No, I actually don't really. And, and, and a bit of a spoiler alert, because I kind of... I kind of disclose that in the final chapter of the book, but it's a very, very complex picture. And um, I, I do think that we've got some of the very best people uh, in the police service, um, you know, that are on a par with the very best doctors and nurses and other public servants who are doing an amazing job. Um, I, I don't think I don't think it's the police actually that's fucked. I think it's sections of society, yeah, absolutely, and, and certainly sections of the media. When I, when I when I joined the job, um, I was issued with trousers, parathea, woolen, itchy trousers with uh, with button flyers uh, and, a, and a pocket to hide my truncheon because God forbid the public should actually see you with a truncheon. Mm. I was given a whistle chain um, with a key on it for a police box. We hadn't had police boxes for at least sort of fifteen years prior to that. Mm. Uh, and so the point I'm making is the police have always been behind the times, um, you know, and. Um, and, and very reluctant to change. And I think that has changed over the years. You've only got to look at the image of it on policing now. I actually think it's probably gone too far. You know, in the, in, you know the, the word paramilitary kind of springs to mind when you look at the way mm. some, you know, armed response vehicle guys are, are dressed now. Uh, I'm not saying they don't need that kit. I'm just saying that yeah. all that that appearance has become acceptable, whereas yeah, yeah. the police would have said it never did. Yeah. I think the problem the police have got is that they are behind the curve massively Mm. Um, with social media um, and with the way they're portrayed. And it seems to me that I know there's problems, I know there's technical problems with releasing um, uh, body-worn camera footage and CCTV footage, but the job needs to be getting on top of. They need to get on the front foot, don't they? Absolutely. And and, and I do think that this is almost an existential fight for the survival of the British Police Service. Um, I I know that sounds probably very dramatic and a bit over the top to say that, but I genuinely believe that. Um, I I mean, the reason the Duggan rights rights happened wasn't because Mark Duggan got shot. The reason that the the police, restricted by the fact that it was already an IPCC investigation, 
you know, weren't able to communicate what actually happened. And so therefore, you know, if you've got a void, it will get mm. filled with internet shite. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a it's technological war. And if you want any chance of winning it, you've got to be in it. And I just think that, you know, they need to get yeah. their act together. Definitely. I think that's probably a really good point to stop, actually. Um, Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. An absolute pleasure. I could talk all day to you. And uh, I just hope that when all of this COVID nonsense, um, you know, is behind us, uh, I can come down to, you know, the SAF. And um, that smoke, mate. Um, there's a funny little thing, just just as a funny thing that um, I I always enjoy reading um, reviews on on their Amazon or anywhere for it because there's some comedy gold in there, isn't there? So let me see. I was reading the reviews on your on your book, and it, one or two of them made me chuckle. Um, so let me see. There's <laughs> there's one here. I always I always like reading the shit ones. That always makes me laugh more than anything. Oh, cheers! Else. <laughs> You're going to read the shit ones. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tell, so, tell them how um, many good ones there are. So, uh, shit ones. so hold on, hold on. Is <laughs> on stand standby caller. Um, what we'll do, we'll go. To, we'll go to the two. The, for, the, the one star ones are always. I don't bother with them because yeah. that's just somebody who's got the hump with you, isn't it? Isn't it? But um, but the two star ones always always make me a bit of a laugh. And there's one here. So here we go. Two stars. Heard good reviews on Radio Two, but nearly stopped reading uh, a few times <laughs> as the guy is obviously a bit of a southern knob and comes across <laughs> as a twat. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. So, well, I was shy. Oh, <laughs> so, all I'll say, so just, just, to set, just to set that in context, you had 4.7 out of five on custom reviews. You had 78% five star, 15% four star. So, well done, you. But um, 1% two star, 1% one star. But that, that one. Uh, just... it's, it's, fun, it's funny you should have picked that one because that's the one that I always cite <laughs> when I talk about it. Yeah, he's a soft, soft southern wanker. <laughs> I bet he drinks shandy. So, so, <laughs> So having spoken to you, having, having had the pleasure of speaking to you for uh, the best part of an hour and a half, um, I don't think you're Southern Knob and you're definitely not a twat, mate. So uh, there you go. Listen, it's been, a com- it's been a complete pleasure, pleasure Tony. I uh, look forward to having a beer with you at some point. And uh, I wish yeah, you I, w- I wish you well. Um, I take my hat off to you. You've been through an awful lot. Um, you're an absolute trooper. Um, that's not to say that, you know, the people who lost their lives uh, in the course of your duty, that we don't think about them because it's every loss of early life at the hands of policing is is a tragedy for the family and tragedy for the friends and everything. We, d- we take no pleasure from that. But you did your job. You did it well. And uh, you're to be commended for that as far as I'm concerned. Mate. So Thank you very much. You take care of yourself and hopefully you. we'll catch up soon. All right. OK, take care. Please Excuse me. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. So there you go, everybody. The uh, quite remarkable Tony Long. I really, really enjoyed chatting to him. It was um, it was great to kind of reminisce as well about some of the jobs that we've both been involved in, albeit from a, a very different angle. Uh, I think you can probably appreciate from listening to him that he's a very sensible guy, not at all kind of, you know, sort of wide-eyed, sort of bloodthirsty uh, individual that probably the tabloid press would like to portray him as. Uh, very thoughtful, um, intelligent guy um, and just to before we finish I'm just going to go very briefly back over some of the statistics um, around the uh, volume of numbers of police shootings uh, in in um, police killings uh, by country 
Um, so as I said, number number five on the list globally is the United Kingdom with 0.5, half a person per 10 million of the population. Um, and, uh, you know, you compare that to other European countries. So uh, so Germany, for example, um, in uh, in Germany, it's one point. So one point three. So again, nearly three times in Germany three times the numbers Norway uh, 1.9 so nearly four times more fatal police shootings in Norway um, so these are countries that that would stereotypically maybe be thought of as being quite sort of benign if you look at France France is 3.8 so that's nearly eight times more people killed by the police in France than there are in the United Kingdom um, so if you're sitting there uh, laboring under the misapprehension that the British police kill a lot of people, then in the words of one of my fictional fellow Ulstermen, who is currently in a television programme that I absolutely hate, I'm sure he's a very decent chap himself, Adrian Dunbar, but in the words of Adrian Dunbar, what I'd say to you is, if that's what you think, you need to catch yourself on. Okay, anyway... Look forward to speaking to you again next week. Hope you have a good week. Take care. Bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>